June 6, 1944, was a turning point in World War II. And this Thursday marks the 75th anniversary of D-Day. To honor that, on today's episode of Based on a True Story, we're going to compare history with the 1962 movie, The Longest Day. The epic three-hour film was co-directed by five different people, Ken Anakin, Andrew Martin, Bernhard Wicke, Gerd Oswald, and Daryl Zanuck. The screenplay for The Longest Day was written by Cornelius Ryan, who also wrote the book that the movie is based on. It also sports an all-star cast that includes Richard Burton, Red Buttons, John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Robert Mitchum, and even a young Sean Connery. With so much to cover on this important topic, I thought it'd be great to get some help with this one. And so, I'm excited to be joined by Marty Morgan. Marty is a historian who has spent decades studying and researching the events depicted in the film. He's helped filmmakers and game developers work toward better historical accuracy and is an author whose latest book is called D-Day, A Photographic History of the Normandy Invasion. He's also led battlefield tours on the beaches where D-Day took place. In fact, that's what he's doing for the 75th anniversary this year. Before we chat with Marty, though, we need to set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you know what this is. But if you're new to the show, welcome. Here's how this little game works. I'm about to give you three facts. Two of those facts are true, and one of them is a lie. Your task throughout this episode is to find out which one is the lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the Allies did not use grappling hooks and ropes to climb the cliffs at Point de Hoc. Number two, Hitler slept through the invasion because no one wanted to wake him up. Number three, there were a lot more nations involved in the invasion than we see in the movie. Got him? Okay, now, as you're listening to our episode today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And, of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, without further ado, let's get Marty on the line to chat about the historical accuracy of The Longest Day. So I know we'll get into the historical accuracy of the movie, The Longest Day. But one thing I like to do here on the show sometimes is give a little bit of context that the movie doesn't give. And since The Longest Day was released in 1962, it was only 18 years after the events depicted in the movie. So I'm sure the filmmakers assumed everyone was familiar with what D-Day was. Well, this year is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, so we're a lot more removed from those events, and I'm sure there's some who are listening to this who may not know why D-Day was such a pivotal moment during World War II, and really world history overall. Marty, can you give us a quick overview about what D-Day was and really why it was such an important part of World War II? The D-Day invasion, June 6, 1944, uh, saw the establishment by the Western Allies of a front in Northwestern Europe uh, by forcing a beachhead in Northern France. The Western Allies were thereafter able to carry out 
coalition ground maneuver warfare effectively against the Germans, first causing them to abandon Normandy, then eventually causing, causing them to abandon occupied France, pulling back to basically the German border, which accelerated the end of the National Socialist Third Reich by contributing um, a major fighting force to the campaign that was already being waged against the Germans by the Soviet Union. And in that way, it contributed meaningfully to the end of Nazi Germany. And I know in The Longest Day, they mention it's the fifth year of World War II. Is that about accurate? Depends on which ally you are. For, <laughs> for, mo- for most of the Western allies, yeah, warfare was in its fifth year. Uh, for the United States of America, it wasn't quite that long because American intervention in the Second World War did not begin until late 1941. So for the U.S., it was still shy of the fourth year. That's not to say, not that's not even to suggest that the United States didn't play a critical role in, in the operation because the United States would eventually contribute the largest fighting force, although that fighting force was not the largest fighting force on Tuesday, June 6, 1944. That was the British First Army. It was bigger. I'm sorry, the British Second Army, bigger than the U.S. First Army. Uh, but the, the tide eventually changed and U.S. forces eventually outnumbered Allied fighting forces. Hmm, interesting. I, I know there's a lot of a, a lot of um, I mean focus on the U.S., which I guess you I get because it's it's Hollywood. Um, but they do a pretty good job, I think, of showing that it's not just the U.S. involved. That's all the different allies that they do. But one thing that I still admire about this movie when I watch it, I'm still sort of amazed that this is something that could happen uh, because I'm not sure that a movie like that could be made today. Well, when you consider the second unit production, so there were there was filming simultaneously going on with multiple directors filming multiple different aspects of the overall storyline of the film to to focus on the French, to focus on the British, to focus on the Americans, and then also to focus on the German side of the action. And to this day, this is one of the things that I admire about The Longest Day. But the interesting thing to me is that while that goes farther than you would expect to see today, I think, because today what we have settled into are more nationalistic narratives of what happened during the Second World War, where each country is sort of telling its own story rather than attempting to tell an aggregate story of everybody all in one action together. Um, But as much as I like to emphasize what an accomplishment that was in the longest day from over 50 50 years ago, it leaves out something that's critically important in that it leaves out a very large number of partner nations from the allied multinational coalition force. And it leaves out the very interesting number of foreigners wearing German uniforms that fought Tuesday, June 6, 1944. Like what other countries were involved in that? Well, on the allied side, we fight the Normandy campaign with 14 member nations. Rather than sit here and make you suffer through me listing all 14, um, there, there are 14. And one thing that, I've been a tour guide in Normandy for almost 20 years now. And one thing that I find quite interesting is when I begin explaining this, uh, it, it frequently comes as a, surpri- as a surprise to most people uh, that 
we have settled comfortably into a sort of um, simplified narrative where we typically we t- typically recognize the American uh, contribution to D-Day and then the British contribution. Every now and then, someone will mention the Canadian, but it typically stops right there. Americans, British, Canadians, and then someone will, from time to time, throw out a catch-all saying, and the other allied nations. And, and that leads out a very large number of nations that, that um, bled on June 6th and during the campaign that followed. So that, for example, not that I would ever dream of taking anything away from the British Canadians, but just to call emphasis on it, on June 6th itself, where I'm just flashing the ones coming to mind, we're overlooking Norwegians, Dutch, Belgians. When we look at the overall campaign from June 6, 1944, till about August 20th, right before the liberation of Paris, we're really overlooking the critical contribution of the Polish the Czech Brigade, Belgium, the Free French. Strange, strangely, I find that I have to remind people that the, that, uh, the Free French participated in their own liberation. Um, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg contributed a battalion. Um, there, I was just writing last night about an Australian who was killed in ground combat fighting alongside Americans. And so the, the multinationality of the force is something that I find is not frequently acknowledged. And The Longest Day doesn't really do that. Again, not that I'm taking pot shots at that movie. I think by the time you and I are done talking, I will have taken a lot of pot shots at the movie. But on that subject, I want to go kind of light on them because I think they did a a pretty good job of trying to bring in the, the other actors that are frequently overlooked. But at the same time, by bringing in those other actors, um, some mistakes were made in the movie. One big mistake that I find glaring is the fact that the movie brings an enormous amount of emphasis onto the story of the French resistance. I'm not saying that there's not a story there because there is definitely a fascinating, rich and dynamic story. But the reality of the French resistance in Normandy was one of a resistance force that was effectively castrated into inactivity. There is, effect- there is effectively no resistance, no active resistance activity in Normandy, but the call, but, but the movie, The Longest Day, would have you believe otherwise. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit of uh, scenes in there with the French resistance showing them uh, destroying communications and um, even kind of working behind the scenes, but then you even see some, I guess it's not really French resistance, but you see French uh, landing as well. Right. There's a depiction of the French conducting the landing because there's a there's a there's a an emphasis that I find quite commendable in the movie on um, the commandos that landed, keepers commandos that landed with uh, the British on um, that would be Sword Beach on June sixth. Um, and, and while that's commendable, there are also depictions of active French resistance fighting. You know, people, people, you know, scuttling around in the darkness, carrying a Sten gun and setting off explosives. And that is something that happened in other parts of France as a part of the Normandy invasion, just not in Normandy. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? 
Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Interesting. Well, you mentioned Sword Beach, and I want to kind of get an overall of the the movie, now that we kind of talked a little bit about the history side of it overall. In the movie, I, I went through and I actually counted there's eight different kind of uh, title screens or text screens that kind of give a, some structure to the film. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, I'll go through these real quickly and I'm, I'm curious how well the movie did because it, it starts with Normandy and we have the British glider assault. In the Orne River, and that's where they drop the uh, Rupert dummies, um, and then it goes to Cannes, uh, and then it goes to St. Mary Glees, and then it goes to Omaha Beach, to Utah Beach, Gold Juno Beaches, it merges together, which I thought was interesting, was the only one that they actually merged together, and then Sword Beach, and then uh, Point to Hawk. So is that basic structure of the movie and the overall operation pretty accurate? You know, this is hard for me to answer that in one word, and I'll tell you why. And that's because if I if I apply the test of the, the D-Day historian to this, I just sound like an old fuddy-duddy and a party pooper um, because all I, I can't help but kind of see the problems with the structuralization and the periodization of the film. Um, what I tend to do when I watch movies, just so that I'm not having a terrible time every time I watch a war movie, is I, I tend to step out of that if I can – um, I think Longest Day presents bigger problems, and that's just because Longest Day single-handedly created not just a few, but an enormous number of deep mythologies that in over 50 years have not been brought into clearer focus, have not been straightened out, and I believe that the film did more to create mythology than it did to create fact. Interesting. Can you don't have to go into you know every single one of those, but you can. Can you give kind of some of the the top ones that you're? Yeah, sure. The big ones that I pick on are Saint Marigolis and Point to Hawk. Um, and if you can tolerate a thirty seconds on each, I'll give you that. Oh um, yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Point to Hawk creates a, an enormous problem, and, and what it does is it the film establishes a narrative where whereby the mission is depicted as having been a failure. 
So that in the film, the way that it begins is, first of all, there is an exaggeration of the reality of the firefight that takes place. There's an exaggeration of the way that the Rangers, the second Ranger Battalion, reach the top of the bluff. And then there is a, a diabolical exaggeration of the actuality of the way the battle ended. Now, one big mythology that's created about Point the Hawk in The Longest Day is about grappling hooks and ropes and the way that the rangers reach the top of the bluff because the film depicts what effectively did not happen that day and that is that the rangers did not fight their way to the top using grappling hooks and ropes uh, one reality is that the western naval task force fire support group the naval force offshore uh it bombarded point the hawk before dawn from 5 45 a.m until 6 30 a.m and then it ceased fire as a part of that bombardment the battleship uss texas using its 14-inch main guns, uh, delivered some uh, uh, an artillery concentration. One round fell short, impacted the face of the, of the bluff. It's really cliffs there. I should say cliffs. Impacted the face of the cliff. The explosion of the 14-inch round created such an avalanche of debris that there was actually a natural ramp that got the rangers within 20 feet of the top of the bluff. And so that when the Rangers did land, they land from nine British-made LCA assault landing craft. When they landed, all, and all nine of those landing craft landed on, the, on that would be the east side of the point, within view of this debris pile, almost all of the Rangers climbed that debris pile. And then when they reached the top of the debris pile with only about 20 feet left to the top, they climbed hand over hand using a runnel where where water outflow had eroded the face of the cliff to some to some extent. The famous one of the famous rangers from that battle was a man named Lynn Lamel, who I knew quite well before his death. And Lamel climbed hand over hand. So in the film, you see this deeply exaggerated battle of Germans spraying machine gun fire down on the rangers as they came off the landing craft, tossing grenades off. Um, which, by the way is something that really did not happen. It then depicts, and then it depicts Rangers climbing Batman style up these ropes that were launched by rocket equipped gap, uh, grappling hooks, which by the way, is something that did not happen. And then it depicts this, um, this battle, this, this ground battle that is way out of proportion to what actually happened. Um, the, the reality of the first engagement of Point to Hawk when the Rangers reached the top of the bluff, was that they engaged the enemy, part of the enemy force withdrew to the south to the coast road, and then part of the enemy force withdrew into the command and observation bunker and buttoned it up. They wouldn't come out for two more days. What, meanwhile, the rangers moved through the battery site, and there was, there was an exchange of fire. It didn't last long. It didn't last nearly as long as it is depicted in the movie. And then what, what I find to be the most aggravating thing that the movie did is that the movie ha features, first of all, it features, um, it's, I think, near six or seven minutes with, with no dialogue of just, just knockdown, drag out gunfight and uh, greatly exaggerating the, the proportions of the actual gunfight that took place. And then the Rangers, three Ranger characters, one of whom was the singer Fabian, who was kind of a known guy at the time. Um, kind of the, well, maybe the Justin Timberlake of his day, but I could say. Um, it follows him and two other rangers as they enter a bunker, I should say a casemate that's, that was um, on top of the bluff. 
And as they move in, they, they exchange some dialogue that's critical to the distortion that occurs in the movie. And the dialogue that they exchange is one of the rangers walks into this, this, this bunker and says, look, they haven't even mounted the guns yet. And then it cuts to another ranger who dramatically takes off his helmet, wipes his brow and says, you mean we came all this way for nothing? And then the scene ends. At no point during the film does it double back to then tell you what happened after that. And what happened after the rangers seized the immediate vicinity of the coastal gun battery on top of the bluff was that the rangers moved inland to move on to the second phase of their mission, which was to set up a roadblock on the coast road to prevent German reinforcements from circulating from west to east using that coast road from the vicinity of Grand Comte to threaten the landings of the U.S. Army 5th Corps on Omaha Beach. The rangers set up that roadblock, and in doing so, Lynn LaMelle observed deep tire tracks and a, um, a cattle path leading down a hedgerow, followed them, found the guns that had been moved. The Germans had been using six French-made 155-millimeter long-range guns. One of them had been badly damaged in a bombing raid in April, and the Germans had moved five of those guns about 1,200 meters from the point. Len Lamel and another ranger named Jack Coon found them, disabled them, and all of this was done before 10 a.m. And so my argument there is that uh, in, in ending the scene with the words, you mean we came all this way for nothing, it is making it look like the ranger mission was an unnecessary mission that did not achieve its objective. When in actuality, the rangers found the guns and silenced them, even though the guns were not where they were supposed to be at the point. The rangers then, I should mention, going beyond 10 a.m. on Tuesday, June 6, 1944, the rangers set up an outer perimeter stretching beyond the coast road, south of the coast road, that was counterattacked twice during the night of June 6th and June 7th, during which time the rangers sustained a very large number of casualties. The rangers were then pushed all the way back to the battery site. The rangers had been told that they'd, hold, they'd have to hold their position for about six hours. They ended up having to hold their position for about 48 hours. And by the time that help got there from Omaha Beach, only 79 of the original 225 rangers uh, walked out under their own energy. Um, so in the movie, it, it kind of powerfully shortchanges the actuality of the point to hawk battle. Yeah, I'd say so. Now, you also mentioned St. Mary Glees, and that's that's where uh, Red Buttons, I believe, is playing John Steele, Private John Steele, and he gets his parachute gets hooked on the church roof. Is that the right. scene that you're referring to? That is it indeed, because uh, to this day, the movie, The Longest Day, I'm saying the movie on purpose, not the actual battle, but the movie itself is is memorialized in the town of St. Mary Glees because a mannequin hangs from a parachute from the southwest the southwest corner of the bell tower. Oh, wow. Now, yeah, to this day, right now as we speak, there is a mannequin commemorating John Steele. And a point that I often make is that what the, the mannequin in St. Mary is today is commemorating, it's commemorating the movie The Longest Day. It is not commemorating things that actually occurred in St. Mary on June 6th. And that's because um, in my almost 20 years of leading tours in Normandy, I went through um, an evolution 
just about all the other tour guides have gone through, and that is as you are required to relate the details of the of the St. Mary Lee's John Steele story over and over again, and as the years go by, the more you tell the story, the more it doesn't make sense, and the more that everything doesn't add up. And that has led me now to be able to boldly announce my position on all of this, uh, which is a not insignificant investment of time and resources. After 18 or so years, I'm, I, I, I feel very comfortable in saying that the scene in The Longest Day is something that absolutely did not happen. The scene depict, depicting the character John Steele, played by Red Buttons, suspended from the bell tower of the church, is something that didn't happen. And I'll make this short and to the point, but there you can when you begin examining the John Steele St. Marigley story, you very quickly recognize that there are three popularized versions of the story. And the first popularized version is that which is depicted in the motion picture of the longest dead. That was then massaged a little bit and 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 a little bit was added to it when um, the late Stephen Ambrose, who was an author and historian from right here in Louisiana, or lived right here in Louisiana, um, Stephen Ambrose added to it um, and retold the story and added two German perspectives. And then another historian uh, for the 60th anniversary uh, added even more to it. The reality is the notion of anybody being suspended anywhere on the roof or bell tower of the church of St. Marigles, uh, it doesn't stand up. There's absolutely no proof whatsoever that in any of it actually happened. All that, they're, all that they have to go on are a few personal accounts, and all of those personal accounts disagree with one another to significant levels. The, most, the biggest was John Steele himself, red buttons, and that is John Steele submitted a written personal account to Cornelius Ryan when Cornelius Ryan was writing the book, The Longest Day. And John Steele's written account differs significantly from what is depicted in the movie in one critical way, and that is John Steele was, in the years after D-Day, when he told the story of being suspended from the bell tower, he was telling everyone that he was suspended from the northwest corner of the bell tower. The movie depicts red buttons suspended from the southwest corner of the bell tower. Uh, which was a production decision made by Daryl F. Zanuck, who produced the film. And it was because the northwest corner where the incident supposedly actually happened, it faces a street that has buildings on it, and so there's very little room for anything, whereas the southwest corner faces an open church market square where there's plenty of room for bringing in um, production lights, bringing in wind machines, and bringing in cranes because they had to use cranes to depict paratroopers coming down in the center of the village. And so Zanuck made the production decision to move the entire scene around to the southern side of the church. And that is what is memorialized to this day in St. Mary Glees. Uh, and a point that I make is that neither thing actually happened. There were nobody was suspended from the northwest corner, yeah, the northwest corner or the southwest corner. I believe that nobody. Uh, landed on top of the church that night. We do know a couple of things, and what we do know is that it was effectively one stick of paratroopers, meaning one airplane for one C-47 carrier transport full of paratroopers, 15 men, 
And they were from the mortar section of the 2nd Platoon of F Company of the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 82nd Airborne Division. And that uh, that one stick of paratroopers began jumping just to the west side of town as the aircraft passed overhead at low altitude. And they were jumping one after the other as the aircraft roared over St. Maragles. And it appears that nobody landed on top of the church. And the reason that it appears that I say that is uh, there are a number of personal accounts written by French civilians who were in St. Maragles that night. They were written in the immediate years after, after D-Day. Absolutely none of them mentions a paratrooper suspended by parachute from the church. The mayor of St. Maragles himself, Alexander Renaud, he wrote a book in 1949 in which he makes no reference to a paratrooper suspended from the church in St. Mary Glees. And you would think that if there was anybody who would refer to that, uh, that, that it would be the mayor, that the mayor would have, would have uh, put his story in writing long before Cornelius Ryan or Daryl Zanuck got there. Um, but that's not the case. In addition to that, there are two passes made during the day on June 6th by aircraft were photo reconnaissance aircraft. And photo reconnaissance aircraft were buzzing all over the Normandy beachheads on June 6, attempting to assess how well the battle was going. They paid particular attention to the area where the two American airborne divisions landed, the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne. And that's because there would be really no other effective means of assessing how well the airborne divisions were doing. And so photo recon aircraft flew over the beachhead. And in both of the photo reconnaissance images that were collected of St. Maragles on June 6th. There's absolutely no sign anywhere of any parachutes. So that could be challenged by saying, well, maybe it had all been cleaned up by then. And while that might be the case, I'm, I'm weighing the evidence and I lend a lot of weight to the the absence of a reference to a paratrooper suspended from the church in multiple French accounts I lay a lot of weight on the photo reconnaissance image because the photos just don't lie. And I weigh a lot less. I give a lot less weight to personal accounts because one thing that is clearly observable in John Steele's personal account that he sends into Cornelius Ryan is that John Steele is engaging in a case of obvious advocacy. He's advocating his story to Cornelius Ryan. In other words, he's effectively saying, you should include me in your book because I had this extraordinarily interesting incident. And and critically, John Steele gets the timing wrong. So he says that he, uh, it, because Cornelius Ryan sent out what was effectively a questionnaire. And in the questionnaire, he says, where were you at midnight on, or where were you at um, 12.01 a.m. on D-Day? And, and John Steele says, I was hanging from the church steeple at St. Mary's Place. Well, he definitely was... He wasn't even in France yet because um, the, the sticks for the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment didn't land until long after midnight. In fact, it was almost an hour after midnight before the 505th Parachute Infantry began coming down by parachute. I'm, I'm going to just cut to the chase. The Longest Day created a false narrative, the narrative of John Steele suspended in the church uh, by his parachute. It persists to this day in the form of a mannequin that hangs as we speak from the church steeple. And that is an incident 
that it's a complete fantasy and did not happen. Wow. Now, you mentioned the photo uh, recon didn't show any parachutes. Does that mean that nobody landed in St. Maryglise at all? I think people did land there. And okay. I think that by the time the, the, the photo recon passed, um, kind of complicates the story. But I think that there's a really good reason why I don't see evidence of parachutes in both images. And that's because on D-Day, um, paratroopers all jumped using a new version of the T-5 parachute canopy, which was made of camouflaged nylon, a 28-panel camouflaged nylon main chute. Their reserve chutes were white silk, and then some of the equipment bundle parachutes were white silk. Not all of them, but some of them. So no people jumped on June 6th using a white silk parachute. In other photos, other aerial photo recon images that were collected that day, I see white silk parachutes um, in the fields, which I believe to be equipment bundles. Um, the, interestingly enough, the mannequin that hangs from St. Mary's, um is suspended by a white silk parachute. And my first reaction to that is, well, when one thing we definitely do know is that John Steele, when he jumped that night, and he did jump that night, just for the record, he did not jump with a white silk parachute. And I should mention another thing, if you don't mind, a, another critical diversion on this subject. And that is that there is an effect of um, piling on that I have observed, meaning that as time has gone by, after the movie came out, and I can't emphasize this enough, when that movie came out, it reached the entire world. That movie was so powerful. And that image of John Steele, played by Red Buttons, suspended from the church steeple, was powerful and memorable. And to this day, um, people remember it very, very fondly, which is why I don't just I don't just deny the story lightly. I've put decades of research into this, um, digging up every possible shred of evidence that I could find. Um, just and I believe me, I wanted to find something that supported this story, and it just didn't. Um, but there is this one account that I found recently, and I'm going to look it up while we're talking. I haven't found it just yet, but I'll keep I'll keep nosing around. Um, the, a pylon effect began. And this pylon effect is that other people, the story itself of John Steele suspended by his parachute from the church steeple, it, I think, created a gravity. And, and once the movie came out and the entire world saw the movie, and that became one of the most memorable parts of the movie, I think other people got kind of sucked into that gravity. And other people, either deliberately misrepresenting their story or suffering from created memories, which is a real psychological phenomenon that is no joke. Um, I think other people suddenly imagined these incidents that did not happen. And there's one account that I found recently that, um, that conforms to that in an interesting way. And it was an account from a book written by a soldier from the 4th Infantry Division. And as you might know, the 4th Infantry Division conducts the opposed amphibious landings on Utah Beach um, just after dawn on June 6th. And then eventually elements of the 4th Division moved up and through um, they moved up and through St. Mariglis. And so this one man wrote a book that was effectively his memoir of his time in combat during World War II, this one veteran of the 4th Division. And in it, he wrote, he wrote kind of powerfully about how as he approached St. Mariglis, 
he saw a man suspended from a white silk parachute hanging from the church steeple. And, and he doesn't get there on June 6th. He's not there until June 7th. And I find it to be such a, a critically important and fascinating aspect of the story because regardless of what did or did not happen, John Steele was definitely not hanging there on June 7th because by John Steele's own account, he was hanging from the church steeple only for about an hour. And regardless, he was not hanging there by a white silk parachute, but yet this man from the 4th Division, he writes a personal memoir in the 1990s in which he says during the day on June 7th, he sees a man suspended from the, the church bell tower at St. Mary Glees by a white silk parachute. And th- that is something that just doesn't add up. Maybe you're getting my gist here when I say all these stories kind of crowd in uh, among each other. None of them agree. All of them complicate one another. And I think what that means is that it's a story that actually did not happen. Yeah. And even, even in the movie, you can red buttons version of John Steele. You see him later on at the end of the movie and he's not on the church anymore. That's right. And the, the interesting nuance that's added earlier, a few minutes ago, I mentioned to you how there are three distinct popularized John Steele church steeple stories. Um, it's a bell tower, not a steeple. I can't say steeple, but the three distinct versions, there's the movie version, there's a second version and then a third version. The second version of the story was authored by the late Stephen Ambrose and Dr. Ambrose in that version found two Germans, one named Rudolph May and one, um, one and the other one named Rudy, uh, I can't think of his last name right now, but two Germans who came forward to Dr. Ambrose, who, by the way, was writing that book in the 1990s, more than three decades after The Longest Day. And these two Germans came forward, and the story that they told was, we went up the tower, um, where we could see an American hanging from the church steeple. We went up the tower, we pulled him into the tower, and took him prisoner. John Steele would later even say, tell the story of how he was taken prisoner by two Germans. They were, they, he was taken down, taken prisoner, and the two and the Germans that had taken him prisoner only an hour later, before dawn on June 6th, they then surrendered to him. The thing that interests me a lot about that is John Steele himself proclaims that he was shot in the foot while he was descending under his open parachute canopy, but before landing. And just to tell you how current my research activity is on this, I I had somebody go to the church steeple at St. Mary Glees two weeks ago, and they um, they obtained permission to go up into the bell tower. And I'll save you the gratuitous description, but it is an actual impossibility of pulling a man up and into the bell tower, a man, certainly a man that's been shot in the foot, and then taking him down um, through the bell tower and out outside of the church. It's an absolute impossibility just because the space involved. It's very tight. It's very confined. And the last stretch of it is a ladder that leads up from the platform where the bells are. And I just don't think any of it's true. And so what I'm saying is that I believe that these two Germans came out of the closet to Dr. Ambrose in the 1990s. And what they did was then associated themselves with this now sensational and very, very popular aspect of the D-Day story. 
And I did, I believe that they did that um, simply so that they could suddenly be consequential so that they're part of something famous. In other words, I'm saying that I doubt every word that they've said. Yeah. I mean, that, that is definitely one of the most emotional parts of the longest day, which, you know, most, one of the most popular movies about D-Day. So I could see how you'd want to be attached to that. I mean, that's, I, I mean, makes sense. It totally does. This is why I say that the story created gravity. And when, when the story was in the written book, I believe that it was far less interesting and compelling. But then when it became that scene, and let's face it, in the movie The Longest Day, that is a centerpiece of the film. It is. And that created a, a, a memory paradigm that is still with us today. And I believe that none of it's true. If it's, if it's worth it, I just found the, the account that I was referring to. It was written by a man named Robert Sternberg. And Sternberg was in the 4th Division during the war. And um, I, found, I, found the, um, I found what he described. Um, he, this is, these are his words. As I write this story, I can vividly see the whole sequence. My field glass was fixed on the church tower to see if the Germans had put a piece of, of artillery into the belfry to shoot down on us. No indication. I was scanning from left to right. I saw a large white spot and saw ropes hanging down from the spire. There was a man hanging in a harness. He looked lifeless. I do not recall whether the guy looked like red buttons in the movie The Longest Day. All I know, we got him. Very much alive. We got him down. And the reality is that can't possibly be true by any version of the story. And I had friends who are involved in homicide investigations, and they all believe in this one maxim, and that is, the closer you investigate something, the innocent get more innocent and the guilty get more guilty. And I believe that the deeper I dig into the story of St. Maraglise and what happened there before dawn on D-Day, and the more every story just adds clatter and, um, and feedback. None of the stories harmonize. None of them link up. None of them link up with any other evidence that's available. And what I consider to be the salient point of all of this is that every bit of that story comes to us from personal accounts only. And I hate to say it, but people will sometimes exaggerate things. You heard it here first. You can't <laughs> always trust people. <laughs> but you can trust the movie though, right? <laughs> That's right. And, and I, can't, I, I can't tell you how many times I have, I have, I've stood in, the, in, the, in front of the church at St. Mary Lee's and people start to ask me stories about it. And as the years went by, just like everybody else, I told the movie version of the story year after year until I started to look into it. And I was like, ah, that just can't be. It just can't. It doesn't work. And as I've gotten older and um, I've done more and more work on this, I'm telling my tour groups um, what I have found. And what I, and you just heard what I found. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever supporting the popularized stories, any of the three versions, personal accounts only. And I tell people of that, and people have this look like, but, 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 and I can tell what they want to say next. And what they want to say next is, but it was in the longest day. <laughs> and, and by the, and by the, by the way, one thing that I frequently get now too is, but, but, but I saw it in Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that movie created a lot of problems too for the D-Day story. And I have to make this observation, although you didn't ask for this, I'd like to make it anyway. And that is that coming from the perspective of the guy 
who has led D-Day tours every single year in Normandy multiple times for 18 years now. Um, I, I have to tell you that most people are getting their history of the Normandy invasion from those two movies. There's a third movie that looms large off the horizon, and that's Band of Brothers. But and that's not a movie; it's a it's a miniseries for cable television. But The Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, and Band of Brothers, each of them in themselves created separate mythologized narratives of the D-Day invasion, and I find it a little frustrating because I find each year, and it's getting worse with each passing year, I'm spending more and more time talking about those movies than I am talking about things that actually happened. Yeah. Well, I could see that. I mean, like you were saying, it, it adds on and it keeps adding on. It's unfortunately that's, that's how it goes. That's the way it works. I had written a book about D-Day way back in 2004 and I had hoped that the entire world would read my book (laughs) and that, and then as I led tours there, that people would just ask me intelligent questions about my book and that didn't happen. And that's because a hell of a lot more people have watched The Longest Day than will ever read my book. And the reality is that movie did more to promote interest and enthusiasm in the D-Day story than any project ever. Yeah, I could I could see that. So I'm curious, speaking of speaking of the movie, that one key aspect that we talked about kind of the the allied side of it, but something that was interesting to me when, when I was watching it is that it really kind of implies that the Germans were just completely caught off guard. Like uh, we see, I believe it's uh Pluscott, the, the guy who is the first to see the allied ships off in the distance. And when you see some of the scenes, there's really, there's like almost nobody defending the beaches at all. Um, and then it talks about how, um, uh, Hitler was sleeping and so they couldn't pull in the, the panzers because they didn't have permission. And was, was any of that true? Like, were the Germans completely caught off guard by this invasion? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that, the scene you just referred to is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it depicts Werner Puskat as he looks out from a coastal bunker. It was filmed. That's a cool thing about the movies. They filmed a lot of it on location in Normandy. And the Pluscat scenes were filmed on location at a coast, coast artillery battery that's called Long Sur Mare. He was not actually there. He was at least kind of near it, but he was not there. Nevertheless, it depicts him looking out, and he's looking through his binoculars right at dawn's first nautical twilight, and he sees shit rolling up the horizon. And, you know, he speaks the famous line of dialogue, invasion, invasion, and he picks up the, a field telephone and shouts into it, Normandy, Normandy. And it, to me, I, I sit through it and I just giggle about it now uh, because it is such an absolute pile of rubbish. I, can I give you a couple of examples of where I'm coming from on that? Oh, yeah. Um, as an example, the 82nd Airborne Division flew to Normandy and I think it was 320 C-47 troop carrier transport aircraft the night of June 5th slash June 6th. When those aircraft took off from their embarkation airfields, they had to assemble. They had to assemble into effectively a division-sized formation that was miles long and was effectively in three big phases. And as those aircraft began assembling, they flew down toward Wiltshire and the UK and assembled near and the skies above and near the city of Bristol. As they did that, keeping in mind that they have not yet even formed up into one big formation and not a single airplane has yet turned and flown out over the channel, as they were assembling in the sky over Wiltshire, 
The Germans were already detecting them on radar. German radar sets tracked the aircraft. And in fact, there's a famous episode um, that relates to as the Germans are tracking the aircraft as they're assembling. And that's not even the first part of the invasion that the Germans were tracking. Um, as they were assembling the German division commander for the German 91st Luftwaffe Division was a man named Wilhelm Falle, and he was south, away from his command post. He was in the city of Rennes, and he received a phone call uh, at the hotel in Rennes where he was staying, staying that alerted him to the fact that very large formations of aircraft had been detected assembling in the skies over the United Kingdom. And uh, so Falle, before the sun set, on before the sun was completely down, on June 5th, Fale had already been advised that very large formations of aircraft were assembling. Now, of course, he, to him, to his knowledge, that could easily be a bombing raid on the way to Berlin. Uh, but still, he took the precaution of putting his division on full alert because of it, so that nobody was caught by a surprise. If anybody was caught by surprise, it was the only surprise really came in the form of this is the main effort because as I believe you're well aware of the Germans expected that an invasion might come at Calais 200 miles up the coast from Normandy. The Germans had reason to, to be concerned about possible landings at Corsica or Sardinia. They had reason to believe that landings might occur in Southern France. The Germans had reason to believe that there might even be landings on the West coast of France on the Bay of Biscay. So the Germans thought it could come at any of these places. And as they looked at that developing picture, the highest ranking leadership in the German military believed that the landings would come across in the vicinity of Calais. Um, and of course, that's not what happened. So when there is an early detection late in the day on June 5th um, of something is going on, the first thought was a cautious, um, I should say a, a um, a cautious suspicion. As the night wore on, that cautious suspicion quickly gave way to total confirmation. And I say that, and, and I would invite you to consider this, because every June 6th, right after midnight, I like to think about this, and that is that shortly after midnight, beginning at about 12.15, Hundreds and hundreds of troop carrier aircraft passed over the Cotentin Peninsula in the area where the 101st Airborne Division and the 82nd Airborne Division would ultimately parachute in. Hundreds of airplanes passed over the drop zones at extremely low altitude. So that from the perspective of, say, the German 91st Luftwaffe Division, which was headquartered very near St. Mary's, the, um, the divisional command post called General Fale who, as I mentioned, was away, about 90 miles away in Rennes. They called General Fallet shortly after midnight with a report saying several dozen, several dozen multi-engine aircraft just flew directly over the command post at extremely low altitude. And General Fallet responded to that by saying, I'm on the way. He immediately got in a car and drove through roads in Brittany and Normandy through the night to get back to the command post. He got back to it right after dawn, and as he pulled up to his headquarters, he was shot by two paratroopers from the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment and killed, um, Jack Schlegel and Malcolm Brannon, two 508th paratroopers. So 
when hundreds upon hundreds, and by the way, when I say hundreds upon hundreds, I mean over 800 American troop carrier aircraft flew over the Cotentin Peninsula and then out over Utah Beach during the pre-dawn hours, starting just after midnight and continuing till almost 3 a.m. And after 800 plus aircraft flew directly overhead at extremely low altitude, there wasn't anybody that was confused about what was going on. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's kind of a, an indicator. <laughs> yeah. And, and if I could mention one other yeah. example, stop me if you're getting bored with this. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, thank you. I was friends with a German soldier who was a machine gunner on Omaha Beach on D-Day named Franz Gockel, who was one of the greatest gentlemen I've ever met in my life, even though he operated a machine gun against Americans on D-Day. Um, and he died in September of 2005. He was a great guy. He was a big help to Stephen Ambrose. He could not have been more hospitable and approachable when I reached out to him. But Gockel, in his personal account, which is no secret, it was published with Ambrose's book, D-Day, The Climactic Battle of World War II. That book came out in 1994 on the 50th anniversary. Uh, and Gockel's personal account, and Gockel was a machine gunner at the largest... Um, resistance nest or strong point on Omaha Beach called WN62. Uh, Gockel was quartered with a French farm family and was awakened shortly after 2 a.m. They were put on full alert. They put on all their gear and they were taken down to the WN62 bunker complex on Omaha Beach right before 3 a.m. where they remained on guard until the sun started rising and they saw the Americans approaching the beach. So Franz Gockel certainly was not surprised. And the reality too, by the way, is that Werner Pluskat, who's depicted in the film, acting very surprised by Invasion Normandie, Werner, Werner Pluskat was not surprised because he put, he was the, um, the divisional artillery officer for the German 352nd Division. Uh, and he went on alert before hours before the sun came up. So in, in attempting to make it look like the Normandy invasion was a huge surprise, um, and it remained a surprise up until right when the sun came up. Um, that is an, an incredibly deep distortion of the historical reality of what actually happened. Well, we've talked about some of the things that they got wrong. I'm hoping maybe the next is a little bit more accurate because <laughs> um, in, in my limited research um, indicates that a lot of the beach experiences were very different. And that's something that we kind of see in the movie, although the details of, of them uh, may be less accurate. But, uh, for example, um, on Utah Beach, we see Henry Fonda's character, Teddy Roosevelt Jr., explain that they landed a mile and a half south of where they were supposed to go. Uh, on Sword Beach, they establish a foothold pretty quickly. And then Omaha Beach, we see that was, according to the movie, they show it as the very first one that was landed. And then it's still the the longest one for them to be able to uh, make get a foothold and advance inland. Were the experiences from these different beaches really that different? They really were. And a point I like to make when I have tour groups there, and I'll have a tour group there in just over two months for the 75th anniversary. Um, a point I make is that five beachheads, five different battles, and all five of those beachheads, it's all, they're so different from one another that it's almost like they're from five different continents. And I, I know it sounds bizarre to say that, but nothing um, demonstrates that more penetratingly to me than 
when on one day I stand on Sword Beach and then I stand on Gold Beach. They're so very dramatically different from one another in that at Gold Beach, um, where British 50th Division landed, um, there are there's high ground to the right that has German heavy armament on it. There's high ground directly in front of them. There's a gently sloping beach swale. And then beyond that, the terrain is, is actually not that intimidating. It stands in complete contrast, for example, with Omaha Beach, where you have a gently sloping beach swale, you have shingle, then sand dunes, and then a bluff that is so steep that vehicles can't drive up it. And that bluff is 100 feet tall. And Gold Beach is next to it. It's next to Omaha. And they're barely 10 miles apart from one another. And they're vastly different in terrain. To go back to what I was originally saying, Gold Beach then is completely different in terms of the appearance of the terrain from Sword Beach. Because at Sword Beach, there's no terrain inland from the beachhead. Whereas at Gold, there's terrain to the right. There's terrain directly in front of you. At Omaha Beach, you're, you're hemmed in by terrain that comes almost all the way up to the water's edge. Then you get to, to Utah Beach, for example, where there's a gently sloping beach swale, there are sand dunes, and then there's two miles of marsh beyond that. And there's terrain beyond that, but that terrain is two miles off in the distance. They're, they're also very different from one another. And then when you get to the beach that usually gets the shaft more than any other ones, and that is Juneau Beach, where, uh, where the Canadians landed. That is at a river mouth that's, that's very heavily affected by the tides. With Where the Canadians had to land, there's not much in the way of terrain in front of them, but, but they're landing in front of a populated town that has this river that's right in front of them, and it's, the, it's river, a river called the Curseau. And they're landing in front of the town, Crystal. So they're actually landing on either side of the town, Crystal Surmere. And so each of the five beachheads are vastly different. The forces that are fighting on those beachheads are fighting battles that are not a little different, but fundamentally different from one another. And then a further point that I would make is that when you subdivide it within each beachhead, you have forces that are, that are struggling against enemy positions and enemy opposition and they're experiencing battles that are vastly different. So that within, just within the, the milieu of Omaha Beach, Omaha Beach is a, a cove that's five miles wide. And there, I, I distinctly acknowledge the existence of five separate battles that occur on Omaha Beach. And a case could be made for seven, but I tend to fold two of them in with the others. And so there are, I mean, and there are five different assault forces that are struggling completely independent from one another. This is during the opening hours of the invasion, by the way. So that if there's one, I mean, I know I'm supposed to say nice things about the movie now, and I've made it, I've made it criticisms again. But if there's one thing that I do find um, that functions as an epiphany for my tour clients when I take them there, is that when they learn of the diversity of experience across the five beachheads, and then within, within each beachhead, there is a further diversity of experience. And in this way, the movie appearance, the, the, the way that the movie presents it, it really breaks down. But that circles me back to a, a critical question um, that I have to use to uh, criticize myself. And that question is, is it possible for a movie to capture all of that? And I think it might not be. 
it would be very, very difficult. That's for sure. You know, we have a joke when we, when I say we, I mean me and the other Normandy tour guides, we have a joke. And that is that we don't refer to the 1962 movie about D-Day. We don't refer to it by its name, The Longest Day. We refer to it as The Longest Movie. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a long film. And if they try to communicate all of this diversity, it would be 10 times longer than it is. And it's, and it's already too long to begin with. <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned the uh, German Luftwaffe headquarters was near St. Mary Glees. And at the end of the movie, the Germans kind of just pack up their headquarters and leave, which honestly I thought was kind of interesting since the movie ends at like seven o'clock in the morning. Um, roughly is kind of the, the last time that we see at least there's a little bit more movie there, but it just seems odd to me that the Germans are just packing up their headquarters right away. Yeah. And, and, and you're, you're onto something there by the way. And, um, and what you're onto is the fact that there wasn't this, this frantic scramble to abandon the headquarters. The headquarters that's being depicted, depicted in the film is Rommel's headquarters, which was at a place called La Roche-Guillon, which is about 50 miles from Sword Beach. So it's not right in the immediate area threatened by the invasion. And although General, I'm sorry, Field Marshal Rommel was not physically present there that day, uh, there was no frantic scramble to abandon the command post. Uh, we can wish that that was the case. I wish the Germans had given up that early. I wish I wish that the Germans had given up Normandy that easily. Uh, I think that a whole bunch of families of people that were killed in the 100 days that followed, I bet they wish that the Germans had run away that easily because the Germans didn't. The reality is that we have overwhelmingly, because of, I think, the movies, because of movies like The Law of the Day, Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, there's an overwhelming emphasis on the events of Tuesday, June 6th, to the point where everybody skips what happens beginning at dawn on Wednesday, June 7th, and picks the story and picks the story up again on August 25th when Charles de Gaulle walks down Avenue de Champs-Élysées in Paris. Um, and the reality is that there is a 100-day-long battle in Normandy that consumes lives by the thousands. Over 25,000 Norman civilians are killed during the Normandy campaign. And that's a story that I, that I like to emphasize. I like to bring it out. Granted, the movie The Longest Day can't tell everything. And it, it has to pick its stories and tell them. And the movie definitely picked its stories. And by picking certain June 6th associated stories, it's leaving out everything that happens after that. Because it wasn't simply we invaded, everything went great, we had a tough day, but then next thing you know, liberation of Paris. That's not what happened. And then what happened in Normandy was that the Germans kicked us around and kicked us around hard. And, and the British can certainly testify to that of what happens to them just inland from Caen. The Canadians can testify to what happened to them in the vicinity of Carpique Airport, just inland from Juno Beach. From the American perspective, we get slapped around hard during those first few days. We manage to push the enemy back. We achieve an early, well, we achieve a success a little later than ex expected when, with the fall of Cherbourg on June 25th. And then we turn after the fall of Cherbourg to push into the hedgerow country when the Germans kick us around really hard all over again. And we really don't start to see light at the end of the tunnel 
until um, after the city of Avranche is liberated and General Patton's Third Army um, is activated and joins the battle and rushes through into Brittany. And that's not until August. Uh, there's 100 days there when the German military fights and fights very well. And there's a period of time, too, when the, the people that were fighting are not the people that are so frequently depicted in, in movie retellings like in Private Ryan or the German character that is really a comic relief character in The Longest Day. Uh, what's his name? It's Cafe. Uh, the guy that's depicted going to pick up milk. Oh, he's the like delivering coffee yeah. to Pluska. And delivering and, coffee. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Delivering yeah. coffee. Yeah. That's it. Delivering coffee. Yeah. Where he's he's depicted as a comic relief character. It's a little bit pudgy, not exactly the best and brightest. Well, that departs from the reality of uh, the German force that actually fought in Normandy because it was full of some some tough hombres. It was full. I mean, we were facing German regular army divisions from Das Heer. We were fighting, facing German regular army divisions that were very good. And then beginning on June 11th, we began to, uh, we began to, um, to suffer under the opposition of German SS divisions. In the American sector, we start confronting the 17th SS beginning on June 11th. Our British and Canadian and Polish and Czech allies can testify to what the 2nd SS and the 12th SS were doing um, farther to the east. And we were fighting some tough cookies. And it wasn't until the maneuver battle turned far more dynamic after about August 7th with the failure of the Mortain counteroffensive. It wasn't until after that that you could really start to see light at the end of the tunnel. And the only reason that light appeared at the end of the tunnel was because a general withdrawal was ordered. The Germans withdrew back to the Seine River. That's not to overlook the Falaise pocket battle, which was uh, a bright and shining moment for the Allied fighting forces who encircle parts of the German 7th Army in the vicinity of Chambois and Falaise. Um, but with the with the Falaise pocket battle, the Germans pulled back to the Seine River. And so a point I like to make is that um, we didn't really beat them and drive them out of Normandy so much as the maneuver battle began to work against their strategic advantage and they decided to pull out and give up Normandy. If they had really wanted to stay and fight, they could have made things a lot more painful for us. They pulled back to the Seine River and then after the fall of Paris, they pulled all the way back to the German border. And that that is, I think, the way that we typically think of what happened in France during the summer of 44. We, I think, sometimes don't recognize it for being long, drawn out, and painful the way that it was. June 6th was just the start of a continuum of long, drawn out, painful, slogging, attritional maneuver warfare on the ground. From a movie perspective, knowing it's a movie, I can see how they would want to give it some sort of an ending. I mean, even if it's not the right one, <laughs> you know, to where, you know, this made an impact in, in that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was an eventually, eventually there was an abandonment of Field Marshal Rommel's headquarters at Rochillon, but it did not occur on June 6th. Well, I know, I know I have one last question for you, and I know you've led a lot of tours, and you've also worked with filmmakers and game developers to help make sure that things are more historically accurate. If you could 
maybe there was something that omitted that you wish was in the longest day or uh, something that we haven't covered yet. That's a common perception that, you know, one of the ones we haven't talked about yet. What would you change about the longest day to, to add that in there? Wow. Cool question. And a very good question. And a, and also a very tough one. Um, if there was the first thing that pops to my mind, and it's just because I've been doing a lot of work on this subject lately, and that is the idea that the fighting force opposing us in Normandy was completely German. Mm. It, it's certainly, it's so much more than noteworthy that the German fighting force in Normandy, I, and I should say it like this, the fighting force wearing German uniforms in Normandy was multilingual, multi-ethnic, and multinational. So we brought this multinational coalition. And the reality is that the the forces fighting for the Third Reich in Normandy were also multinational and multi-ethnic. There were Germans from, uh, there are people in German uniforms fighting there who were from uh, the former Czechoslovakia. There were Russians in German uniforms, sometimes mainly in support units. Um, There were uh, French in German uniforms fighting for the Third Reich on their home soil, which I believe adds a fascinating complexity to the story. Uh, there were Germans, uh, there were men in German uniforms from the Soviet Central Asian Republics. A story that kind of makes its way around the internet every June 6th now is a story about um, about Korean soldiers in German uniform. It's completely untrue. There were absolutely no Koreans uh, fighting with the Germans in Normandy. There were, however, men from Soviet Central Asian republics who had been captured in combat and were what they called Hiwis. They were German volunteers. That got them out of the prison camp, and they, they served basically in support roles in the German military. Um, and so what that creates then is that you have not just Germans and Czechs and some Poles and some Russians, but you have Georgians. You have men from Azerbaijan. There are and the people that are typically thought to be Koreans, I believe, are Mongolians. And there were also Frenchmen in German uniforms fighting there. And I believe that diversity says a lot about what the German military had become by 1944. And then the other big thing that I wish was in the movie was something that pointed out one important detail, and that is they were not afraid to wake him up. They woke him up. My God, they actually, they, act, they actually woke him up. When the phone call from von Rundstedt reached, because uh, Hitler was in residence at his private residence, at the, the Berkhoff, near Bechtesgaden in southern Bavaria, and the first phone call that came in, which was just after midnight, he had there were two people in the house with Adolf, and and Abel was there that night as well. So there were four people in the house. Two of them um, were the his personal valet and his driver. When the phone call came in, it was unusual for a phone call to come in late at night because Adolf t- typically went to bed kind of early, and yes, he was taking sleeping pills that helped him. Get, you know, go to sleep. But this old false narrative of a drug-addled Adolf Hitler who was passed out cold and everyone was too scared to wake him up, it's complete falsehood. Because the first phone call came in and the valet's first reaction was to say, well, he's he's asleep. And the and it was a switchboard operator that, that forwarded the call. 
So when the valet spoke to someone on the other end of the line, it was a switchboard operator that said, I have an important call for the Fuhrer from Field Marshal von Rundstedt. And the valet went with this gut reaction of, well, he's asleep. And so the switchboard operator said, okay, thank you, and disconnected the call and then reported that on to von Rundstedt, who then said, no, get them back on the line. I need to talk to him. And so minutes after the first phone call, a second phone call came in. The valet answered it. The valet then said, sure, please hold the line. He put the, the receiver down, went into Adolf's bedroom, gently woke him, Adolf. And the, and the valet even said this. The valet even recorded this in a personal account, said he rolled over. He turned on the light, put his glasses on, picked up the phone, and started to speak with von Rundstedt. Said that the, the valet said he had a brief phone call with von Rundstedt because the valet went back into the kitchen where where the other phone was in the house, and the valet then listened in. He eavesdropped on the call and said that the Fuhrer had this brief phone call with von Rundstedt, and the Fuhrer did all that he could do, and that was von Rundstedt said there, we've got a parachute landing coming in. We don't know what the size is yet. There are some radar indications that look like there might be um, an amphibious assault force offshore, and the Fuhrer listened to it and apparently then said to him, okay, well, uh, we really won't know much until dawn, right? And von Rundstedt said, we'll, we'll know for sure after sunrise. And Adolf apparently went back to sleep, said, okay, well, let's talk again then, and went back to sleep. So it had nothing to do with the Panzers, like we see, like the movie seems to imply. And, you know, and it, and it sort of does, but it sort of doesn't, because you're obviously familiar with the fact that there was a little bit of a convoluted command structure, and that there was the awkwardness, first of all, of two German um, army, and, I, and when I say army, I mean not SS, but Das Heer, the German military, the German army, not the military in general, but the army itself, two commanders that shared command, and that's Field Marshal von Rundstedt and Field Marshal Rommel, and Field Marshal von Rundstedt was far longer in rank than Rommel was, um, but the two together shared command, and neither one of them could order the Navy to do anything nor could they order the Waffen-SS to do anything. And the Germans had come up with a plan, and by short shrifting it the way that the movie does, it makes the Germans look stupid, and the Germans really weren't that stupid. They're not as bumbling and as bureaucratic as that film would have you, have you believe, because they came up with a strategy. They could not possibly defend every inch of coastline with infantrymen. There were places on the coast where if a landing was going to happen, it would happen here, possibly. And they also didn't have enough armor to dispatch armor after every single possible landing. And so they came up with a plan that to me looks like pretty sober. It makes like, it looks like, um, it looks like a, a coherent plan because what they did is they made a decision to concentrate the armor at rail hubs and that in the event of a large scale opposed amphibious landing operation, the armor could then be dispatched using the French railroad system toward wherever that landing occurred. So by situating SS divisions, and that's SS Panzer Grenadier divisions, which are mechanized infantry, and then SS armor divisions, by situating them at near railroad hubs, they could circulate north to Normandy, either to Normandy or to the, to the Pas de Calais, or they could circulate west toward the Bay of Biscay, and once again, the Germans considered that there was a possibility of landings at the, on the Bay of Biscay. And so it's a pretty good plan. 
But what it requires is if a landing begins, you have to quickly identify whether or not that's the main body or a diversion. And then once identification has been made, then you start sending those divisions moving. A lot has been made over the decades, and it's almost 75 years now. A lot has been made that the German response to the D-Day invasion was faltering and wasn't decisive because Adolf Hitler refused to release the armored divisions. And that's really not true. The reality is that SS divisions begin moving within 48 hours of the landings. That paints quite a different picture now, doesn't it? Yeah, it's complete opposite of, I mean, not only the, the, the bumbling kind of the comedic relief, as you mentioned earlier, but also the whole, the power structure and everything. It, it, the movie definitely does give off that, uh, that allied or is in, are invading and the Germans don't know what to do. Right. A, a point I love to mention to Americans is that the 17th SS, that's the SS division that Americans confront in, while the battle is still happening near the beachhead. The 17th SS gets the order to begin moving on June 8th. The 17th SS experiences its first exchange of fire with American units on Sunday, June 11th. Hmm. Um, the 17th SS spent that time. It was slow going. They didn't swiftly rush all the way up. They were over 200 miles away. They didn't just rush right up to Normandy. It took them some time because we're harassing them by air. We're doing things like dropping. Um, we're dropping the, the Allied version of guided bombs on things like the railway tunnel at Saumur on the Loire River, which greatly interfered with their ability to move up and move vehicles. Um, but they're still there by Sunday, June 11th. So in other words, we're less than a week after the invasion and the 17th SS is not just getting there, but it is there and engaged with American combat units in ground warfare. It certainly does paint a very different picture. It really does, doesn't it? The Germans weren't as buffoonish as I think many of the post-war retellings want us to think they were. Well, as they say, history is written, written, uh, sorry, written by the winners, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, it, that it is. That it is. And, and, and we made strange decisions when we wrote the history of the D-Day invasion. And when Cornelius Ryan put it down, he really liked – Cornelius Ryan was a storyteller, and I often say that storytellers are the worst historians – because they, they want to tell a, a compelling story. And compelling stories, um, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The story, stories told by historians sometimes don't follow that kind of a pattern. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. That's the way life goes. And exactly. Sometimes historians will just go on and on boringly forever. Um, but Cornelius Ryan wanted to tell a compelling story. And one of the decisions that he made as a storyteller was this bizarre um, image of the Germans being com being caught by surprise, which they were not. The story and story of Germans kind of kind of fumbling and being a little bit doddering in their response, and then the Germans in their surprise scrambling to um, to abandon a command post that they didn't actually abandon until much later. Wow. I mean, thank you so much for your time. I really, I really appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun talking about this and learning about some of the things that it got right and most of the things that it did not. <laughs> well, I failed to mention the biggest thing that it got right was that it exposed literally millions of people to the story of Tuesday, June 6th, 1944. And that serves the greater good. I, I agree there. If, if, if anything else, hopefully this is something that will encourage people to, to go learn more. I hope that as well. 
And on that note, is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to plug, let everyone know where they can find out more about what you do? Well, um, uh, a second edition of my second book is coming out uh, here in about a week. It's called um, it's called The Americans on D-Day, Photos of the Normandy Invasion. Um, it's, it's a compendium of photographs that, that follow the American story from the landings on June 6th up to about um, 30 days or so after the invasion. Um, that's um, that's going to be available on Amazon. It's already available on Amazon for pre-order, but that's about to come out. Um, working on also television programs that will be all over the, all over the broadcast uh, when the 75th anniversary rolls around. And I'm about to release a big article um, discussing John Steele, Cornelius Ryan, um, and the story of what happened, what actually happened in St. Mary Glees. That I'm going to I'm going to post that and go live with that article on uh, June 5th. Um, and if anybody wants to learn more, they can visit my website, martinkamorgan.com. Very good. I'll make sure to add those links in the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much for your time, Marty. It was a pleasure speaking to you. I'm always happy to talk about the D-Day invasion. Thanks again so much to Marty for taking the time to dig into the longest day with us. Now, at the end there, Marty mentioned that his new book was coming out soon. Well, through the magic of recording earlier than the episode is released, that really means that his new book is available now. So if you want to see some of the faces and places behind the things that we've chatted about today, go pick up his latest book called D-Day, A Photographic History of the Normandy Invasion. I'll make sure to include a link to Marty's book in the show notes for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the Allies did not use grappling hooks and ropes to climb the cliffs at Point de Hoc. Number two, Hitler slept through the invasion because no one wanted to wake him up. Number three, there were a lot more nations involved in the invasion than we see in the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number three. That is true. As Marty mentioned, there were quite a few nations on both sides of the battle that the movie doesn't show. For example, there were French on the Allied side of the invasion, but there were also French wearing German uniforms defending as well. That brings us to number one. That is also true. Marty pointed out that the Allied ships bombarded Point de Hoc, causing a natural ramp that helped the invading forces climb to the top. They did not use any grappling hooks or ropes like we see in the movie. So that means the lie is number two. The movie seems to imply the German officers were afraid to wake up Hitler. And even though he was sleeping at the time of the invasion, which makes sense considering it started in the wee hours of the morning, but they did wake him up once they realized what was happening. That brings us to an end of this episode. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.